1984, Joe Deaver released the first of the Lone Wolf Gamebooks, introducing readers to the Kai Lords and the world of Magnamut in which you were the hero. Now, 40 years later, those books are coming back, and we're here to talk about them. It's the Journeys Through Magnamun podcast. Welcome to another episode of Journeys Through Magnamun with me, Jonathan Stark, sometimes known as Zip on the community. And I'm August Hahn. And today we are here to talk about the Chasm of Doom. Now, for me, Chasm introduces one of my favorite villains of the entire series, the Acolytes of Vashna, as well as perhaps one of the most daunting threats in the entire series, which is the resurrection of the Dark Lord Vashna. How do, how do you feel about this book, August? Well, this book comes in just after the big main plot has finally settled down. You've you've gotten the Summer Sword. You've right. De- you've defeated Vonatar. You're you're feeling big and strong. You're restarting to rebuild the order, and then it all goes to heck again. And in this case, what I love about Book Four is that it sets up seeds you'll see throughout the rest of the series. Yeah, and that's a really good point about how you how the transition from the first three books comes to this one because when you start this book, it's not all that stuff uh, the the resurrection and all these plots they're not immediately apparent. You're really brought into this um, actually as a bit of a level up because the very first thing that happens is you're put in charge of other people for the first time. You're given this kind of level up to your character. You have more responsibility, right? It's it's almost a social level up. Um, basically, Lone Wolf is given this noble title called Fry Earl, and that's because he's now the Earl of an area called Fryland, which is around the monastery and contains some very important places like the town of Rockstarn. Yeah, it has nothing to do with fast food. He's not the Lord of Fries. He is not the Lord of Fries. No. <laughs> well. Let's uh, let's jump into it, shall we? Sure, let's do it. The king has summoned you, Lone Wolf, last of the Kai Lords, to his citadel at Homeguard. Your quest is to find Captain Deval and his men, discover what has happened to the missing convoy, and to uncover the veil of mystery that now hangs over Ruinen. As you prepare to leave the city, you glimpse a black crow perched on a high window ledge above. It flies away, but not before a shiver has run down your spine. In Homeguard, the crow is a bird of ill omen. So we mentioned that in this book, one of the big level ups is that you're actually put in charge of other characters. And these characters are the border rangers. You're given 50 men that go with you to investigate this plot of uh, of the missing gold. Uh, the, the king's gold is missing. And you are, you're given these border rangers to go investigate. 
Uh, yes, and it, and it's a huge deal because the the money that's missing, the gold that's missing, is effectively an entire season's worth of revenues. So the whole kingdom suffers if the gold's not found. And the border rangers that go with you are these like are these the like the best of the best? Are are they wh- who are these guys? All right. Well, there are large expanses of untamed territory uh, within the northern lands of Summerland. And it shelters this seemingly endless stream of wild creatures, bandits, renegades, uh, things that have been a plague on the travelers and, and border settlers of the Northern Kingdoms. Um, in order to combat that threat, uh, there's a need for brave and trustworthy border rangers. Uh, they're valiant soldiers who originated within the Kingdom of Summerland as a castle, which is their word for a regiment of the king's armies. Uh, they're specially trained to protect people within the wilderness. Uh, they're tr- natural trackers. They're natural hunters. Uh, most of them are extremely adept with a bow. And they're almost like Summerlin special forces. Man, they almost sound like um, like uh, Kai Lords minus the, the divine powers. And indeed, uh, a number of individuals who either had some of the Kai ability but couldn't couldn't cut the the full training uh people we call Kai Virin uh they have some talent but they'll never be full Kai lords a number of them are part of the border, border rangers that's interesting so i wonder um do they feel honored uh to be kind of serving the last living kai uh, or do they or is there competition kind of in that in that way Oh, no, it's an absolute honor. Uh, being able to serve the last of the Kai Lords would, is literally to them almost hero worship. Uh, he is the last of the Kai Lords. They've always served the Kai Lords, so it's a perfect melding. And would there have ever been, this is just kind of an off-the-cuff question, but is there, would there ever have been a chance that, say, Lone Wolf hadn't been about, he hadn't hit that branch and, and fallen down and, and been spared from the massacre. Is there a chance that one of these border rangers could have risen up and become, you know, like had those powers manifest after all? I mean, it's a possibility. Um, not anything I think that, that Joe even vaguely entertained when he was plotting out the book. Um, the border rangers, again, the Kaivirin only have a small amount of talent, so got it. it. It's unlikely that any of them could have refounded the order. And speaking of Joe and his and his thinking around this book, when he makes this decision to put the player in charge of these rangers, do we know if he played with various mechanical ideas for this? Uh, in the books itself, it's kind of handled via decision making. It doesn't really have a mechanical effect. Right. There, there's there's no top-down way for you to actually command your forces. Um, and, and it's a good question. Yes, Joe had a couple of different ideas in mind. He was going to borrow a few pages from a different series that he wrote, which were basically head-to-head game books, where you and another player would would go through the same adventure, but you were antagonists. Oh, is this uh, Combat Heroes, I think? That is correct, Combat Heroes. I have a couple on my shelf, actually. I found used in a very random uh, circumstances. But yes, yeah, you you play as this, uh, you kind of, each person has a book, almost like the old um, Lost Worlds fighting books. Right, Black Baron was my favorite of, of the characters you could play. And and so he was going to borrow, do you, what when you say mechanics from that, you mean 
in terms of another person was going to have a book? No, no. But if you if you remember those books, they have this sort of like bank of numbered pages. That, right. That you, in order to go through the particular section of the adventure, you interface with other with the another book. It wasn't going to be another book. It was going to be another section. And when you wanted to command your forces, you'd use that section of pages and you'd compare over, okay, I'm going to use this soldier or this group of soldiers. Well, then I go over here. Oh. It ended up being too cumbersome. Um, it's an interesting system, but the book would have ended up being about 700 pages long. Or just about that with not a lot of narrative. It's just like, let's go do a, a, a battle. <laughs> exactly. The, the the system worked really well for a head-to-head concept. But as far as an actual adventure story, it, it didn't work out. And speaking of an adventure story, I, one of the things that I enjoy a lot about Chasm is this sort of build-up section. You end up going um, through parts of Magnamon that we haven't yet explored, kind of the southern part of Summerland. And along the way, you can meet various interesting figures I'm not going to go through them all. I'll let readers discover some of them for themselves. But there's one that I always just enjoyed, and it's these – is it Asajir or Asajir? Oh, the Asajir. The Asajir. Asajir. These Asajir troubadours. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I just – they're given this wonderful artwork and these wonderful descriptions. You don't even have to hang out with these guys, but – I just had to ask, do we know, were these one-off characters, or did Joe have as much love for these troubadours as I, I felt come in through the writing? Oh, he, he absolutely had a lot of love for these troubadours, who appeared several times during his role-playing games. God, I knew there had to be a story there, because there, they there absolutely too is. much personality for them to be, you know, an accident. <laughs> no, they they definitely weren't. The, the only issue, unfortunately, with their lore is that it, most of it was never written down. It it came from from Joe's specific RPG game, his campaign, and so he never really put it down into much more than just a handful of notes. Which makes sense, right? He he didn't maybe have a narrative backstory, it, he, but he definitely knew their personalities, and you just it, feel it exactly. And and since he didn't need more than that for the book, he didn't bother crafting any extra lore i always wonder i was like is this joe's like uncle or something that he's put in the book <laughs> when, when you when you guys read the books you'll you'll see what i mean if, if you just hang out with the troubadours just the description and the scene it just feels like like joe has seen this before it, it's perfect it, it, yeah, absolutely. I, I really enjoyed that section of the book. And I, like you, when I was reading it for the first time, I was wondering, who are these people? There's a Whose lot of personality. Yeah, there's a, a lot of personality here for some for some throwaway NPCs. Well, and, and this kind of leads me to my next thing, because I've read Chasm a lot. It's, it's one of my favorite books. Uh, I just enjoy the progression. I enjoy the writing. I enjoy these characters like I'm talking about. Um, but I've always, I realized in this time preparing for this podcast, I realized I'd always let my men hang out with the troubadours. And so there's this whole other path that you can take if you don't do that. So there's this whole other path that I've always missed where you can stay at a tavern and have these other interesting conversations and meet these other characters. I never met those characters because I always chose to go with the troubadours. 
Well, that's because they're they're really fascinating. And I think, honestly, I almost always opt that direction, too. But yes, if you go a different direction, you end up going to a tavern after like two sections. And then there are conversations you can have in the tavern. And it really does kind of spin you off on a whole different tangent in the adventure. And this kind of sets the pace for the first half of the book, because the other big split path is that you can choose uh, one of two cities to sort of head to. There's the path south to Ruinon, or you can go east to Eshnar. Yes. And they are definitely two different cities. Now, which, August, out of curiosity, did you have a path that you usually took? I, to be honest, I, I know that it's a little weird. A lot of people go to Eshnar. I think I always headed to Ruinon. And see, I was the, I was that other people. I I was the others. <laughs> I always went to Eshnar, uh, and I won't say why, but there is a little bit of a a clue that seems to point you to Eshnar, and and I always chose that. And I've never gone to Ruinon. Never, except for this time reading it for the podcast and this whole other story opened up to me. Yeah, I was I was actually talking with uh, Vincent Lazari about that particular section of the book. And uh, and he mentioned a couple of things to me that I I always saw, but I didn't realize it. Like if unless you go south to Ruinon, you never see the Ruinon Bridge. You never cross the River Zane. Some of the most iconic creatures in Lone Wolf. You only encounter if you go that direction. As you run towards the ladder, the dreadful screams of your dying men claw at your ears as they are eaten alive. You stop and stare back into the tunnel. The stoneworm is now barely 20 feet away and is slithering towards you at a terrifying pace. You know that you will never reach the ladder in time to escape. Now, whether you end up in Eshner or Ruanon, eventually you're going to have the opportunity to enter the next big area of this book, which is the Machin Mines. And there's a quote from the books that I love uh, that, that Joe wrote to describe these, and I just want to read it real quick. For hundreds of years, the ore of this range has been the blessing and the bane of thousands drawn here to seek their fortune. Men have either found wealth beyond their wildest dreams or have perished without trace in the labyrinth of cold, damp tunnels. So hearing this description, it almost sounds like the mines were sort of there uh, tempting people to come and and you know plumb their depths. Uh, what's the story behind the mines? Were they dug by the Summerland? Oh, the mines of Ruinon, also known as the Mackin Mines, were first established in MS 4550. And that's when rich deposits of iron and copper ore were found in the mountains that form that, na- that natural eastern border between the province uh, itself and the Mackinmire Swamp. So this is about 500 years ago from the present day that we're playing the Chasm of Doom. Correct. And as you can imagine, it's an extremely rich vein. If it's been worked on for five centuries and it's still yielding. So this must be, so this must have been a moment of great, like a boom in the economy of the, was it the Summerland people, the Summerlending who dug this? 
Uh, yes, and the ensuing uh, gold rush transformed the mines uh, as, pro as prospectors arrived in droves, uh, mostly from Summerland, some from Duranor, some from farther south, but everyone who came became part of Ruinon. So eventually, through over time and breeding, all became Sunlending again. So, so just so I can picture this, so basically the Sunlending dig the mines, and they must have moved in with military might pretty quickly to sort of secure them. Uh, yes, um, in MS uh, forty five seventy, by decree of uh, King Olnar the Third, the mines were declared crown property and placed under crown administration. That's when full castles of soldiers came in to defend them. Got it. And so did Ruinon, because Ruinon has its own baron and stuff. Is that baron essentially, were they, was their family line appointed as protectors of the mind? Were they basically there to oversee the king's interests? Uh, correct. And that's really where the dynasty of that family began. Got it. Okay. Okay. Now, the Dark Lords... They don't have much interest in gold, right? I mean, they, they're not like, they don't hoard gold like dragons. They don't need it, really. No, no. But at the same time, a number of them are of brilliant intelligence. So they understand the idea of economic disruption. They may not want gold, but they know that some lending, Summerland runs on it. So the minds of Ruinon must face then opposition. Tell me if I'm wrong or if I'm missing anyone. But I'm guessing opposition from surrounding nations who want the gold, dark lords who know that it's important economically, and and then also maybe the creatures they find in the mountains? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, the creatures that they find not only in the mountains, but in the depths of the mines as well. Because when the Mackin Gorge ripped open, there were tunnels opened up between the, the mines themselves and where ancient Agarashi used to lair. Okay, so am I right in thinking that the most terrifying creatures that you meet down here are those Agarashi? Uh, for the most part, yes. And oh, that sound is the sound that means it is time to do another monster focus where we take a monster from this book, one of the ones that uh, is memorable uh, to fans, and kind of deep dive into it. And today's monster is the fanged giant cat, the Elix. One of my per one of my personal favorites, and and so striking because of the Gary Chalk art. Yeah, do you want to describe that picture for us, uh, August? It's great, <sighs> it, and, and the, one of the great things about it is its complete its simplicity, right? Because it's just this sort of dark box, like you're looking out of a doorway. And there's just half the face of this monstrous cat with this enormous eye looking at you like you are the tastiest mouse ever. And I think one of the things that makes it uh, even more intimidating is, is I, one of the paws is, is pressed around the door, almost as if it's the one pushing it open or pulling it more open. It gives this feeling of just... of malicious intelligence yes and the and the perceptions are off too right the proportions that the eye is too large for the face and the paw is too big for the door and so it's very otherworldly 
To be fair, that's how Gary draws some of the women in the books too. But <laughs> well, yeah, but I wasn't gonna make. I was not going to compare women to monsters. You terrible person. <laughs> Speaking of terrible people, when you find the Elix, there uh, there is a whip nearby, and this led to a question in my mind: Are are there people that are, you know, domesticating or sort of forcing these animals into their service? Well, the Elix are Agarashi; they are born of the blood of Agarash, so they are these demented, demonic beings, but. They're a little devolved. Uh, they're devolved from what they were, which was a much larger group. Uh, some of the Elix that of their original breed were large enough to ride. Okay. Wow. See, and I, and I thought they were still kind of of that size, but I guess they're not quite horse size. They're more like a uh, maybe a puma. Mm, just a touch, a touch bigger than a puma, like an extremely large mountain lion. And when you say they were able to be ridden, were they were they ridden by the forces of darkness? Yes, some rare instances were used as as uh, mounts. So I have to understand this. Then this one that's in the mines, which is where you can find one in this book, is that one being used as some sort of strange guard creature? Or uh, yes, it has. Okay the the devolved version, the current Elix. They can be at least somewhat domesticated, and it requires a, a brutal hand and, and a firm will. So the Vasagonians do somewhat domesticate them with collars and whips and harsh training. So they are not related to cats? No, no, they are not. In, in anything more than a, it's possible that Agarash's blood corrupted a cat at some point. Okay, okay. But ever since then, they've been Agarashi. So there isn't real, it is not healthy to think of these Elix as pets. Like they're not going to be, you're not going to have a good Elix. No, no, they are innately evil. Now, because it is a devolved species, there are some variants, but at the very best, they'd be incredibly vicious. Which raises a question in my mind that I've never thought of before, because I wasn't aware they were Agarashi. It, it seems to me that the Elix are somewhat prolific, like they've they've been able to breed and spread throughout the wildlands. So that's my first question. Is that true? Uh, they they can breed. They they are they are not sterile. Uh, they are fertile, though they do not have very large litters. Okay, but there's there are a fair number of these wandering around. Correct. So. If ever there was a return of, uh, you know, a master of the Agarashi, either Agarash himself came back or someone who could control them, are the Elix sort of waiting to serve their their great master, or are they just wild beasts that are that exist purely to be apex predators? The current breed, the current devolved breed, yeah, they're they're just predators. They have Agarashi instincts. They probably could be commanded by a new Agarash, but otherwise they're, they just have feral instincts. They're vicious. They're apex predators. And similarly, is, is hunting the Elix, has this kind of become a, like a, is this amongst the, the magnum of people, like a great sport, like, you know, the greatest, the greatest prey, so to speak. 
It might be, but you'd have to have a really adventurous hunter to do it. Oh, they're Especially that dangerous since, then. Well, they are very dangerous. Uh, but not only are they very dangerous, but in the few areas where they breed to any good numbers, it would be a place like Vasagonia where they're treated as guard animals, war cats, and are kind of protected by the Zakan himself. You try to ignore your aching legs and the fear that knots your stomach by forcing your concentration on the sun flag, the fluttering symbol of hope in the distance. Your face is streaked with sweat and your lungs feel as though they will burst, but you dare not slacken your pace. The thought of warhound fangs closing and tugging on your skin is all you need to drive you forward. Uh, there's also kind of part, the mines, there's like sections that have been abandoned and then some that seem um, more freshly dug. Is there new digging going on all the time? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, exploration of the tunnels has never fully progressed because of the dangers down there. So there's always exploration going on. And where there's exploration, there are prospectors. So yes, the, the mines of, of Malkin have never stopped growing. So it makes sense that these would be a primary target of these bandits that that you're sent out to find at the beginning of this book. And they seem to have taken control of the mines, these bandits. In any case, the this control would have been fairly short-lived, but it, it couldn't be tolerated at all. It had to be ended. Got it. And you say short-lived because the king could have just marched an army in there? Eventually, yes. Troop placement being what it was, uh, there was no fast way to deal, to deal with it. But eventually, yes, a causal or more would have come in. Now, the bandits, for all that, they did seem to get kind of the jump on Ruinon. Uh, they, by the time you get there, it looks like they've essentially surrounded it. They have it under siege. They do. They do. They're, they have a substantial force behind them. And without your presence there, do would there be any chance that they that the bandits would not have won this fight, or would they have taken Ruinon without the presence of Lone Wolf? They probably would have taken it. They wouldn't have kept it, but they'd have taken it. You hammer on the trapdoor, desperately trying to escape but your captors cover the trapdoor with a heavy oak cask and keep guard in the room above. Four days pass before the lock slides back, but the hands that open the trapdoor are bony and fleshless. I want to talk a little bit about these, these bandits that you're facing because they, from the beginning, I remember when I was a child, um, I don't know how you how you kind of approached this August, but when I read this book and I was given control of all these border rangers, my first thought is I'm going to go find some bandits and stomp them into the ground. Like this is we are so <laughs> overpowered for this mission. And I remember my first fight against these bandits and they are so deadly and they're so um aggressive 
and they they're just they come out of nowhere and they're so precise and you, men start falling around you and i think my child self just kind of got wide eyes maybe a little <laughs> bit of trauma from that moment i was like okay I'm, i don't need to fight any more bandits <laughs> perhaps lone wolf has aired <laughs> <laughs> can i go back to fight fighting dark lords i have a sword for that yes yes did you feel the same way for uh, me? Like, a, a little bit a little bit and, and i think that that was intentional Joe wanted to lead this up and, and make you think, oh, it's just a rabble. This is going to go easily. You're going to go down there, stomp a few. And that's when he hits you with the reality of large scale combat. Well, and 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 hits you with these uh, uh, almost literally with these little razor discs. Um, well, big race of discs. They're like deadly Frisbees or Chakram. Uh, I remember the picture, uh, in this book of just one of your men head snapped back and this disc embedded in his chest that yes. really stuck yeah. with me as a kid. And, and that's a, and that's a Gary Chalk illustration. And it is an impressive, it shows just how much force and how suddenly the man is just dead as the disc buries in his chest and his head snaps back. Yeah. It's, it's a brilliant piece. Now, what are those discs? What, what what do we know about them? Well, they are essentially the Magnumun version of Chakram, uh, and they are created by the Vasagonians. Uh, typically, they're thrown by spinning them around one finger and then hurling them forward. That's the inner edge isn't isn't sharp. So you're sort of building up this centrifugal force and then letting that carry it. Exactly. Um, some amongst the Vasagonians throw them as you would a normal shuriken. But for the most part, they're spun and then thrown. Now, interestingly, there are a couple of other versions of these, uh, including a blunted wooden one that the Kundi use. Oh, interesting. Uh, the Kundi are a, um, a, those are a sage, a group of sages, right? Uh, yes, a simian humanoid uh, breed of sages, yes. What's interesting about that is it's almost it's almost speaking to the two different intentions because I know the Kundi are generally depicted in Magnamund as a fairly fairly peaceful people, uh, whereas um, the Vasagonians, for better or worse, are depicted as being, if not willing to go to war, at least very skilled in it. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and so when the Kundi use them, they use these these blunted versions as both toys and for hunting. I love it. So I was right about the Frisbees. Yeah, basically, yeah. They're they're these little little eight-inch wide Frisbees. So so the bandits basically use uh your men for Frisbee golf. <laughs> but that is just one piece of their arsenal, and that's more specific to these to the ambushers amongst them. You get to get to this siege scene, because this is really one of the probably one of the more memorable scenes, maybe in the series for me, it's this incredible battle. Yes. Oh, absolutely. It is. And and it's to date through the books. It is the largest battle that you've been a part of. You're absolutely right. You are really in the thick of this siege. I mean, making moment to moment decisions while this battle kind of just sweeps over you. Right, you and are you are directly the focus of the battle. You you're the one making the decisions, fighting against the siege. So yeah, for you, this is reality. This is everything around you. 
And Joe does a great job of writing it so there's this feeling of danger and of being overwhelmed by vastly superior numbers. Do we know any of the inspirations that Joe used in constructing or writing this scene? I don't think he's ever stated it, and I've never seen anything in writing. I would assume, being as big a Tolkien fan as he was, however, that it probably something like the the siege of Helm the siege at Helm's Deep would have had would have been a big inspiration. And I guess I also know that he was a big uh, tabletop war gamer. He loved uh, to to run those big simulations, kind of like the early days of of Warhammer and things like that. So I guess he would have kind of in his mind thought in those terms of, you know, being kind of a bird's eye view of these two armies clashing. Well, not only was it an inspiration, but um, I know for a fact he actually played this battle out. Oh. Uh, him, and, him and his tabletop group played out the, the uh, siege. Did they play it out before he wrote it down so that he could take from that? Or did they play it afterwards as an homage to what he'd written? No, it, it was played beforehand. Ah, wonderful. Okay, so he's always drawing inspiration from his gaming. That's great. Absolutely. Well, all right. So maybe the best way to do this is I want to kind of hear how you went through this battle, because I'm sure we did it differently. (laughs) (laughs) I used to always fight on the battlefield proper. When I was was a kid, I always felt like I got to be the leader here. So I would take all the options that took me deeper and deeper kind of into the battle, trying to lead the soldiers by example. Uh, I would always keep my soldiers with me. Uh, Anytime there was a chance to to separate some of them off, I always tried to avoid it. I tried to be a leader to them, and unfortunately, we we know how that turns out. Uh, it could be worse. You could be trying to teach them how to sail a boat. And, and Lone Wolf no, would, that, that, <laughs> that would just be an instant failure. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I bring this up, and, and it's funny that we chose the same way, um, but I bring this up because this time I tried something different because, you know, I wanted to explore, take the opportunity to explore these other paths, and I was inspired by how different the earlier choices had made things. So I tried to stay back this time and be like this range sniper kind of character. And I was impressed that you can do that. You yes, can you play can. that role in the battle. It, it's right there. There, there is an, There's an entire second path where you effectively stay in the walls and fight a defensive battle. It's great. I mean, it, it, this, is, this is that stuff that I really think is so enticing. Um, you know, the Kai series, it's it, it certainly, you know, you can tell the series matures as it goes on. But there's a freedom to these early books that I love. Yes, I agree completely. And especially in, in a book like Cosm of Doom, where you really do have these fully branching paths that are completely different. And you can't experience the whole book with one read through. Now, the battle here really turns when eventually you're able to one way or another, take out the leader of the bandits. And this is, well, the leader of these troops, I should say, not the full-on leader, but the leader of this siege battle. And this is a theme that I see a lot in Magnamon, I'm realizing, in the Lone Wolf series, where a leader gets taken out or a primary figure and that sort of routes or or all the forces will, you know, will be stunned and flee or or be torn down by you know, the, the, the bolster this gives to your men. Um, 
So is this something, I, I was just curious, is this something that Joe drew more from history or is it a fantasy trope, we think? Or is it actually something that's tied to the culture of Magnamon as a whole? This idea of the, the troops always follow a specific leader, and it means so much if they're taken off the battle. So here we have the Vasagonians. And is their, is their culture, uh, is this their kind of war uh, strategy that they definitely follow a distinct leader into combat and look to them to, to you know, as their rallying point? Well- for the for the Vasagonians, yes. Now, in this particular instance, this really is a a gathered group of of bandit warriors. They are definitely going to flee as soon as their leader is gone, because for a lot of them, it means they're not getting paid. Oh, so they're not all Vasagonian. No, no, no. The Vasagonians were able to raise this force with by using bandits in the area. Oh, you know, I never put that together. I always lumped them all together as Vasagonians. Yeah, and and so that's why most of them flee, because they're not going to get paid. Their leader's dead. They've got no reason to trust these foreigners, the few of them that even know the foreigners are involved. Okay. Oh, see, I'm glad I asked that question, because this is – that's really showing – a, a deeper look at the structure of the bandit military, where it's really from the top, the top guys are Vasagonians who are just hiring these much weaker fighters, much less um, experienced fighters as their ground troops. Well, you know, as, as a Vasagonian commander might say, anybody can block an arrow. <laughs> and they certainly do. <laughs> they and, certainly they, do. and they do a lot in this battle. A lot of bandits go down to arrows. So at the very beginning of the podcast, we mentioned that this plot is bigger than it at first appears. And there is more going on here than a bandit uh, a bandit force attacking some mines. And that plot begins to come kind of more clear near the end. We we learn about this sacrifice that is going to happen, and we hear a prophecy. And uh let's let's have that, let's have that read now. When the full moon shines o'er the temple deep, a sacrifice will stir from sleep the legions of a long-forgotten lord. When a fair royal maid on the altar dies, the dead of Mark and Gorge shall rise to claim their long-awaited reward. Who first made this prophecy? All right, so the prophecy was actually viewed in the stars by a number of different astrologers. Uh, it was it was fairly widespread. It wasn't just one group that discovered it. For the acolytes of Vashna, however, their prophet of the black moon is the one that brought it to them. And we can't talk more about him because he's a spoiler for later. So there we go. I mean, th- there's so much more behind this group than is even apparent in this just this first uh, this first encountering of the acolytes. Oh, the, yeah, this this book just sets up for a great deal more. So the big bad of this book, the one who's kind of behind this, is this guy named Baraka. And 
how did he come across the prophecy? Like, how did he get involved in all this? In a way, he was always involved. Uh, he is fully a champion of Vashna, and as such, effectively raised in the darkness. So his entire life, he's been a part of the prophecy. Oh, interesting. So this isn't somebody who grew up a noble and then kind of fell into worshiping the dark. This is a guy who's been raised to the role? In a sense, yes. Uh, he has uh, he, He's a natural leader, uh, and he leads the, the acolytes of Vashna here. He has a strong connection to the spirit of Vashna, and through that connection, he has powers, supernatural strength. And he has the natural lethality that has him being referred to as the Doom Slayer. Now, I want to go a little bit deeper into this because this is not stuff that's uh, contained in the pages of the book, of book four. But when you say he has this connection to the spirit of Vashna, like how did that come about? Was he born just, you know, gifted or was this some a ritual that was done to tie the two together? Is he some aspect of Vashna reborn? He is not an aspect of Vashna Reborn, but I can't say much more than that because, unfortunately, spoilers. Got it. So those answers are coming later in the series. They, they yes, you you learn a great deal more about both the Doomslayer, the pro, the prophecy of Vashna, uh, the dagger of Vashna, which I assume we're going to touch on here in a minute. Yeah, let's talk about that dagger. What is the dagger of Vashna? Uh, it is literally a tiny piece of Vashna's spirit that's been bound into the weapon. And its only reason for existence is to hold this spirit until such time as a ritual is required to bring Vashna back to life. Okay, so so using D&D terms, Dungeons and Dragons terms, this is a phylactery. Yes, yes. Essentially, it's a phylactery. Okay, so, so the dagger, uh, was it forged during Vashna's... Like, was it forged by Vashna? Let's just say that it was forged for him. Why Why is it shaped to human-sized hands? That's an excellent question. Uh, it's forged for human hands because it's meant to be used by cultists to perform the ritual that brings him back. Got it. And see, the reason I ask this is because for a long time in the fan community, uh, now this is going quite a ways back, before any of the more recent books or anything like that, but there was the idea that the dagger of Vashna had belonged to Vashna as his own personal weapon. And I always wondered, well, then why is it so small? Because Vashna is a big dude. <laughs> He's a dark lord. They could be like 20 feet tall sometimes. The, the dagger of Vashna really is oversized for a dagger. Uh, it's not quite a short sword, but as a dagger, it is still fairly large. And I guess it sounded more impressive than the pocket knife of Vashna. I shall be brought back from the dead by the butter knife of Vashna. <laughs> and I I bequeath to thee my banana peeler of Vashna. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it's an oversized weapon from a dagger standpoint. Got it. But it would still serve him as a dagger. Now, we, we do get the opportunity to get and keep for many, many books the dagger of Vashna. But we never really get an opportunity, at least in the older books, maybe the definitive editions will change this, to really use it as a weapon or, or know what its statistics are. Does it have powers outside of containing Vashna's soul? Yes. It, it is a magical weapon, and it's treated as such in just about every regard, as far as the books are concerned. 
it does have its own powers. But again, anything more than that, probably a spoiler. Got it. Can I, I'll ask this. I don't think this will be a spoiler, but in comparing, say, to the power of the Summer Sword, is this the dark equivalent or is it much less powerful than that? As a weapon, it would be far less powerful. It, it, it has one intention. It only exists as a way for Vashna to cheat death. Dawn arrives, rain-swept and gloom-laden. A pall of drizzle hangs over the ghost city, and the gruesome discord of the wailing winds of Markengorge makes you feel uneasy. You watch and wait, your kai cloak drawn close about your shoulders to keep out the chill, damp air. It was here, during the age of the Black Moon, that King Ulnar of Summerland killed the mightiest of the Dark Lords, Lord Vashna. In mortal combat upon the very brink of the Abyss, the Dark Lord was slain by the Summersword. It is said that his death cry when he fell will echo through the gorge until the day he rises to wreak his vengeance on Summerland and the House of Ulnar. So, so many locations in this book I love, so many places you can go and, and are memorable, but probably my favorite and the most memorable to me is the last location, which is the ruined city of Machen on the edge of the Machen Gorge. This place is so creepy and, and it's so, it's a ghost city that feels like it would even scare away the ghosts. Um, and it's such a unique dungeon, especially at, you know, just, just the, the location of it, this idea that you're on the edge of this abyss and it, it kind of bores along the, uh, the cliff wall, you know, is always how I pictured it is the city is kind of built into the, uh, the cliff wall of that gorge. It almost, almost like a Pueblo town, but as opposed to the side of a cliff, it's the edge of the gorge. Right, and and, a, and an evil gorge, a demonic <laughs> gorge. Evil Pueblo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of my favorite descriptions in the book is the uh, is that description of, of of Vashna's cry wailing up yes. through the gorge continuously, just like this this endless screeching wind. And of course, it it pulses in and out. Sometimes it's extremely soft, and you can't quite hear it. And at other times, it's deafening. Well, a guy's got to sleep sometime. Evil never sleeps, right? <laughs> that's very true. Uh, that's true. Well, one thing, though, about this this dungeon, and, and I've always wondered this. Uh, I'm so glad you're here to talk to us about it. It's a really, really short dungeon. I mean, excruciatingly short. I, I'm so sad whenever I get here because I know there's not going to be much of it. And I had to ask, is this because geographically these ruins are actually very, very small? Or was it a narrative issue in terms of we only have so much space uh, to describe things, you know, and, and so we have to end this here? It was both, to be fair. He was running out of sections at that point, so it had to be truncated slightly. But for the most part, it's it's narrative, right? You're only seeing one small part. This is the the one section of the ruins that you have to go into. But it is considerably more sprawling than that. Did Joe ever, uh, did he have an idea of how sprawling it was? Did he ever map that out? Uh, yes. It, I, I don't know about a specific map, but he did uh, He did expand out on some of these concepts, uh, some of which 
have been put into the texts of current books that are out, like Realm of Summerland. Wonderful. And and this kind of takes us to uh, some of our, honestly, aftermath questions. We we don't often, we usually stop here, like kind of at the end place, but a number of fans have asked on the Facebook page, and I, I wanted to honor them by asking myself, do we, we don't really hear about Madeline and Oren Vanillon, the Baron and his daughter, uh, who are connected to Ruinon and, and very much this plot to resurrect the Dark Lord. They're victims of this plot. We don't really hear much about them after this book, um, especially Madeline, who plays this kind of role of damsel in distress. It always felt like Lone Wolf might have you know more of a connection with Madeline. Maybe it's just that trope of I was a young boy saving a girl and uh, you know I wanted them to get together <laughs> but I just was curious um I do know these characters come back far far later but did Joe ever plan to develop a relationship between Lone Wolf and Madeline and then abandon that or was she meant at the time to be a one-off character Oh no she was never meant to be a one-off character as far as what he had further plans for uh, that's only noted in a couple of different places. Uh, he mentions her a couple of times in his notebooks, and I'm fairly certain that there was supposed to be, if not a romance arc, there was more to their story. Got it. And I, I wondered always uh, why that was cut, if it was maybe because of the, you know, you could play these books one book at a time, and that was maybe too much of a connecting narrative point to work in. Or if it was just the romantic angle felt maybe too mature for the audience at the time? Not really a maturity issue. It was more a it was an intentional decision on Joe's part to keep Lone Wolf as blank a slate as possible. Got it. Sort of the link of the Zelda series uh, kind of character. Correct. Correct. While there are some personality traits you could give to Link, for the most part, he's whoever is playing him is. And I actually appreciate that he did that. For one, it's really allowed the definitive editions uh, to take this really awesome route um, where they're they're very making very small edits to the text in order to also portray Lone Wolf as potentially uh, a female or genderless or non-binary or whatever whatever the reader wants to connect with most. Correct. Correct. That effectively just pulling a few pronouns, allowing the reader to be who and what they want to be. And it's nice that I guess they uh, a relationship. Um, sorry, my twelve year old self, but a relationship wasn't forced between <laughs> Lone Wolf and, uh, and and Madeline. But by the same token, it means that as far as your Lone Wolf is concerned, there was a relationship. Yeah, he had something on the side for sure. Up. And as we know, that sound once again means we got another monster on the way. We're being beset by monsters today. And this one is the Daemonic. Am I, am I saying that right? The Daemonic? Uh, the Daemonach. 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 Now, this creature, I'm not sure it's even named in this book. Uh, no, you don't actually get its name in the book. But it is the creature that is described is a Daemonach. And it is very memorable. Again, going back to Gary Chalk's art, I remember flipping to this page as a kid and kind of being taken aback uh, at what this was. I mean, it's it, it looks like a mix between a demon, a gargoyle, and maybe even like a, an alien. 
um, with a winged creature, bat-like creature that can swoop down on you in the uh, ruins of Machin and make your stay there very, very short. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Now, they are dark spawn, so they are directly created by the power of Nar. So these and are not are, Agarashi. These are not Agarashi. They're, they're dark spawn. Got it. And when they're directly created by Nar, does that mean they are an extension of his will, his soul stuff? <laughs> Or do they in, in in a sense, they are directly created by Dark Lord Vashna. Uh they he was the one that invented this creature. He first used them as spies, assassins, he'd send them out as scouts, and occasionally shock troops. Now tell me what makes them dangerous. Well, they're not as powerful as they used to be. Uh when Vashna first created them, uh the last few survivors are several thousand years old. But time's taken its toll on them. So they're, because Vashna isn't around, he can't renew them. But even weakened, they're extremely powerful because they have a, their bile is a paralyzing agent. So if they catch you with their claws or their fangs, it's very possible for your entire body to lock up. And then once they have you paralyzed, they can drink your blood. Okay, so they're vampir, they're uh, vampiric. They are. It, in fact, it is suggested that the same power that's behind them is the same energy that empowers Sejanos. Oh, in a much later book entitled appropriately Vampirium. Correct. Okay. Well, that is interesting. When we get there, I'm definitely going to have questions about that because I did not. I always wondered where that came from. We and with the with the expansion of all things Vampirium. That's coming with the DEs. Uh, I'll have I'll be happy to have that conversation. Now, if you do happen to find yourself facing one of these, um, you don't actually have a combat with it in this book. It, it it will flee under certain conditions. But are they are they fairly killable, or do they require magic weapons? Like, how do you harm these things? Oh, they can be harmed physically. You don't need a magical weapon to hurt them. Uh, while they are incredibly deadly and quick, you can put them down. If you actually had to fight it, you'd act, you'd find the battle to be, probably be a little easier even than some of the bandit battles earlier. Okay, got, that's why it flees if you actually get in a position where you can face this thing on, let's call it, more even terrain. Right, they're they're ambush monsters. Uh, it, it tries to hit you as soon as you get into a superior position. It flees. And are they ever harvested or or used for their poison? Or are they too rare, too deadly uh, to to do that? I suppose being physical creatures, you could hunt them for their poison. There's there's no real mention of it. But I suppose if someone was brave and or stupid enough, give it a shot. So, while the plots that are begun in Chasm of Doom are far from over, this is it for the book today and our episode today. Uh, The next time that we meet, we're going to be discussing what is, I think by many, considered one of the greatest books in the entire series, uh, often a fan favorite, and that is the seminal Shadows on the Sand. A double book, and the only double book in the series. 
And by double book, it's up to what, 500 sections? Uh, correct. It's it's effectively two adventures that are so inextricably linked that Joe, that Joe just published them together. And it's an appropriate book to choose as a double because this adventure also will mark the last adventure of the Kai series. And we'll be talking a little bit about that next episode as well. But for now, we will wish you well on your own journeys through Magnamund. And as always... For Summerland Summerland and and the the Kai. Kai. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this revisiting of one of fantasy's longest-running series. To get the latest news on Lone Wolf and to pick up the definitive editions of the books, which include new sections, updated rules, and additional art, visit magnamund.com. The music you're hearing now is from the Brotherhood of the Crystal Star, a musical project by Lone Wolf fans Andy and Mark. They are on a quest to create an original song based on each of the Lone Wolf books. You can learn their story and hear more about the project at brotherhood.rocks. That's brotherhood.rocks. And they really do.